Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, August 31st. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On this week's financial show, we're going to talk a little bit of uh, you know Warren Buffett. A little Buffett, a little Berkshire. We got the newly minted nonagenarian. Uh, Matt and I have a couple of stocks that we're actually going to pitch to you today. So, not ones to watch, but a couple of stocks that we think in the financial space are good looking opportunities today for investors taking the long view, of course. And as you probably guessed, joining me this week, as always, it's certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Hey, it's another day in paradise down here in South Carolina. It's a beautiful, sunny day. And Nothing I'd rather be doing than hanging out with you guys. Well, I love it, love it, love it, and I'm enjoying uh, what we're going to talk about today. You know, digging into into the show and and, and what we're going to talk about. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, I've, I've always enjoyed following Warren Buffett to see him turn 90 over the weekend. I thought it was really special. And um, and and hey, listen, I'm excited. We actually get to throw some stocks out there for uh, listeners today to to really. Uh, Ponder, you know. I mean, consider consider adding to their portfolio. We're going to throw a couple of of stock ideas your way. But first, let's talk about the birthday boy here. Uh, over the weekend, Warren Buffett turned ninety years old. You know, cheeseburgers and cherry cokes, and man, the guy's just he's just making it happen, looking better than ever. So it was really nice to see uh, see that. Happy birthday, Mr. Buffett. Certainly saw a lot of people on Twitter wishing you well and. Uh, you're kind of like our North Star here at the Motley Fool in a lot of ways, and and you know, along with the birthday news, there was some news of some new investments uh, on on the part of Berkshire Hathaway and and Mr. Buffett. And so, Matt, I wanted to talk with you about that first because you know Berkshire Hathaway they they essentially invested stakes valued at around six billion dollars right now in five different Japanese companies, and you know he he said something that I thought was really. It may on the surface look like a little bit of an odd investment, but he said something in the interview regarding it that I think just encapsulates really what it's all about. He says, you know, we're happy to be a part of the future of Japan. And that's really what investing is. You're, you're participating in the future. And so clearly he sees uh, Japan with a bright future in an economy that is is do, you know doing a lot of great stuff and, and a lot of advancements, innovation there. Five different companies, a lot of money. Uh, talk to us a little bit about these companies and this investment, Matt. Yeah, so these are essentially they're known as trading companies. This is, it's a, a Japanese specific business model um, where these are essentially big conglomerates that invest in a bunch of different businesses. It kind of sounds like Berkshire Hathaway, <laughs> but so not only did Buffett spread his money out between five different companies, but these are five different companies that spread their own investments out among a bunch of different operations. They have uh, things like transportation, metals mining. Um, infrastructure, a lot of them have energy operations, things like that. So these are five trading companies. I think of this kind of in the same sense that I think of Buffett's bank investments, or I know he doesn't own them anymore, but his airline investments, in the right. sense that he's not picking a winner. He sees an, an a long-tailed opportunity here, and he just kind of likes the whole space, in this case, Japan. He likes the Japanese economy, and he's kind of investing in the, in the whole thing, not just one part of it. So, Matt, I don't want to interrupt, but I have to ask, it sounds like maybe Warren Buffett is taking the basket approach. Would you agree? 
He is. This is his, uh, I guess, Japan basket, I guess you ah, call it. I love it. I love it. I love um, it. The, the Buffett Japan basket, I guess we there can call this. Yeah, why um, not? But a couple of like, significant things to, to mention here. You, you mentioned this is a, a little over $6 billion at the current market value. That's the biggest investment. I mean, I know it's not a single company, but this is the biggest investment that Berkshire's announced in some time. Yeah, I know that the Dominion natural gas buy was ten billion dollars, but that included like six billion worth of debt. So it was only about four billion dollars worth of cash that Buffett put up for that. We mentioned Bank of America recently, but Berkshire only invested about two billion dollars in additional shares. So this six billion dollar investment's the biggest you know purchase Berkshire's made in some time. Yeah. Um, so why why is this significant? I think it's significant really for two reasons. One, it shows that Buffett's really committed to putting some of Berkshire's giant mountain of cash to work. Um, I mean, Berkshire had over $140 billion on its balance sheet at the end of the second quarter. We mentioned the Dominion uh, assets, the the Bank of America stock that he bought. Those were all things that happened in the third quarter. And this purchase happened, if you read the press release, over a 12-month period. These aren't U.S. stocks, so they didn't show up on the company's 13F filing. But Berkshire made these purchases over the course of a year. So that also shows that, remember how everyone was getting frustrated in the March and April period when Berkshire literally bought nothing according to its 13Fs? So maybe Berkshire wasn't being as conservative as you thought. They were quietly buying up these Japanese companies. Um, And like you said, this was pretty consistently over the course of a year. So in the in the early days of the pandemic, Berkshire was was putting money to work, just not in the ways, not in obvious vis- visible ways to us. So, this is definitely a significant thing. It's not a giant investment by Berkshire standards. Uh, about six billion dollars is a little over one percent of Berkshire's market cap. So, even if these are wildly successful, they're not going to be that much needle moving acquisitions. Not like the Apple investment or anything like that. But it, it's significant that Berkshire, Buffett really seems committed to finding ways and thinking outside of his usual his usual box in in putting this money to work. Yeah, I'm glad you made that point um, regarding you know our conversations all throughout the year. Kind of you know why wasn't he putting money to work? And, and well, it turns out he was just in a little bit of a different way. And it definitely sounds like he um, is is open to uh, growing those investments as well. I, I think I saw where he he said he was happy to take it to ownership stakes in any of those companies up to nine percent or maybe nine point nine percent. Maybe that's where uh, you know maybe that's where where the cutoff is, so that so that he doesn't have to necessarily report. Um, but I mean, I think any which way you cut it. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's a bet on the future of Japan. It's a bet on um, the global economy. It is a, a basket approach. I think is just the, the probably the easiest way to put it because I mean he he wasn't really placing um, you know his his investment in in one name. I mean spread that across five different companies and and so I think that's uh, that's a pretty sensible way to go about it. Especially you know with a country. Where I mean, anytime you're outside of your your home stadium, so to speak, it's a little bit more difficult. The degree of difficulty goes up, and so I think spreading that risk around um, makes sense. Uh, Matt, I wanted to talk for just a minute about uh, Warren's birthday because you know one of one of the things that that came up over the weekend, or I saw this on Twitter, I thought it was really cool. One of our colleagues here at the Fool, Anand Chokavelu, 
is uh, he's been been with the company for well longer than I have. He's been here ever since I've been here, so he's been here for longer than I have, which you know is t- ten plus years at least. Um, but but he is you know he's he's a Buffett guy. I've I've learned a lot from reading uh, on his writing through the years. And one of the things he did, I think it's really cool. He said on Twitter, uh, he said August thirtieth is Warren Buffett's ninetieth birthday. Each year, I celebrate the Babe Ruth of investing's birthday by adding another reason we love our hero. And then he went on to rattle off nine. Tweets of just really great gems, things that he and we have learned from uh, Warren Buffett uh, along the way. And, you know, we, we wanted to pick out things that we had learned from him, lessons that we use in our investing um, philosophy. And, and I'll, you know, I'll just say, I think, I think it was the 35th point that Anand made here, but I really, it really resonated with me because it was, it was a quote and it's on keeping, on keeping it simple, stupid. And the quote is the business schools reward difficult, complex behavior more than simple behavior, but simple behavior is more effective. And that's one of those things that resonates with me. Because I say oftentimes, and maybe I got it from this, but I, investing is as easy or as difficult as you want to make it. So I, I try to keep it simple. I try to keep it, you know, easy and, and not difficult. Uh, so that's one of those. That's one of those buffetisms that sticks with me even today. I was wondering if if there are a couple of uh, lessons, one or two lessons there that that you wanted to highlight this this week in in honor of uh, Mr. Buffett's birthday. Yeah, and I'm, the one you just said sounds similar to one that I really love. That's uh, you don't need to do extraordinary things to get extraordinary results. Yeah, um, but it's really tough to just pick one or two. I've, I actually wrote a piece <laughs> on my. I, I wrote something about my hundred favorite Buffett quotes, and we will tweet that out on the on the Motley Fool Industry Focus feed too for the listeners, along with Anand's Anand's uh, 90, 90 gems. There, we'll retweet that on the feed as well. We will, but I and I can I can share just my you know three of my favorite Buffett lessons that I've learned and put into practice myself. Um, number one, Buffett loves to buy companies that are in temporary trouble. This was the origin of his American Express stake, just to name one. Um, this is where he got the Bank of America stake originally during the financial crisis. Uh, you know, a company in temporary trouble, it's or I'm sorry, okay. a great a great <laughs> company in temporary trouble. Yeah. You know, a lot of companies have temporary trouble and go bankrupt. <laughs> he wants great companies in temporary yeah, trouble. Yeah, understandable. So, to, to apply this to my own investment philosophy, um, this is where my um, my own Bank of America investment came from. Um, this is why I bought companies like Empire State Realty Trust. Um, I mean, the Empire State Building is a fantastic asset. The company's got a rock solid balance sheet, but it's got temporary trouble right now. Um, you know, it's you know, New York offices are not exactly a, a thriving at the moment. Um, Ryman Hospitality Properties, one we've talked about. Great company, temporary trouble. Conferences and group events aren't a thing right now. So buying great companies in temporary trouble is one of my favorite Buffett lessons. Another one, a climate of fear is a long-term investor's best friend. Um, I've put more money to work in the market in, in March through May of this year than I have probably in the previous three years combined. That's believe. I mean, that makes sense. That makes and, sense. And it's because it it was a big climate. I mean, March especially is probably the worst climate of fear that's happened in my lifetime, including the the um, financial crisis. So, and so it was. It's just been a climate of fear. Which, as a long term investor, as a short term investor, my portfolio has gone like this. You can't really see it. <laughs> the people listening can't really see this, but it's been kind of a roller coaster ride since March. Um. I remember that the the day my my portfolio peaked in value all time high, the last day I was at full HQ, which was in late February <laughs> at some point. 
Um, I think we did a, a the last time you saw me alive with Jason was the best day, the, the my peak <laughs> net worth. Since then, first it was like a roller coaster. First you have the giant drop, and then it kind of goes like this for a while and like this. So as a short term investor, it's been kind of a hectic time. And if I was obsessing about the short term swings in my portfolio, I would never get any sleep right now. But as a long-term investor, I know that I've bought some excellent companies at low prices. And that's kind of a, a Buffett mentality. You know, you just turn off the news. I haven't turned on CNBC in three months. I love CNBC. It's a great news channel. But I haven't turned it on in three months just because I don't, you know, I don't want to pay attention to the short-term swings. And I don't want somebody yelling at me about the short-term swings the way they do on there. You know, trying to make them seem even worse than they are. Um so ignoring the headlines, focusing on excellent companies at great values, and finally looking for a margin of safety when you invest. Um, that's something Buffett talks about. The way he says it is, if you were driving a truck that weighs 9,900 pounds and a, and, a, and a bridge said capacity 10,000 pounds, would you drive across it? I'd be thinking twice about that one, that's right. for sure. <laughs> and what he says is you'd probably drive down the road a little bit and find another bridge that says capacity 15,000 pounds. That's a margin of safety. So that's what we look for in stocks. Um, you know, the Empire, I mentioned Empire State Realty. That's a great one with a margin of safety because they're kind of, it's a terrible business to be in right now, office space in New York City that's pretty much shut down. Um, but the company has about, you know, a billion dollars in liquidity. They have excellent credit. They have very little debt compared to their peers. That's a margin of safety, having that much cash in the bank that you could, you know, be flexible, do whatever you want with. Um, so those are the, those are my top three. I know I've rambled on a little bit, but I do love Buffett lessons and I could talk about all hundred if you really want me to. Yeah, we could go through. I mean, listen, that's, that's, there's there's an entire series of shows here, and, and maybe we'll talk to Anand about that because there's a lot to a lot to dig into there with the the stuff that he tweeted out. It was really great. Uh, so look for that on the industry focus feed. Uh, Matt, let's jump into the ideas we wanted to get into today because these ideas, you know, they they employ our investing philosophies, lessons we've learned, and certainly certainly Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, they've been a part of that all along the way. But we wanted to, to throw a couple of ideas in the finance space to listeners today. These are ideas that we, we think really look like uh, good investable ideas, worthy worthy of consideration for investors today. And so, I'm going to let you start it, Matt. Let's take about five minutes each, and let's just kind of make our case. You know, this is we're not, we're not pitting me versus you. I mean, maybe we'll throw a poll out there on Twitter to see who likes it. But just, you know, go in. Give us five minutes and talk about the stock that you're pitching today and, and why you like it. Sure. I'm actually going to go do something rare for me and pitch a recent IPO. Normally, I advise staying away from those. And it is Lemonade. L-M-N-D is the ticker symbol. Um, if you're not familiar, they are an insurance tech company. Um, insurance is a massive market. It's you know over 10% of US GDP is insurance. Um, it's a $5 trillion annual market. Lemonade is an insurance tech company. Their basic idea is to use artificial intelligence and other you know modern technologies to make the insurance business quicker, easier, and more affordable than it ever has been before. Um, it kind of reminds me of you remember when Geico first got really popular because of their fifteen minutes could save you fifteen percent or more. Remember that line? So it's kind of something like that, except now you can get a quote in a few seconds thanks to the the technology. So. The insurance business, the general idea is that it generates money that can then be invested in something else while you're waiting to pay out claims. And Lemonade does it a little bit differently. 
First of all, for right now, they offer homeowners, renters, and pet insurance. Those sound kind of like three random you know, things for an insurance company to offer. They're planning to add things like health insurance and life insurance eventually, but right now they're just kind of ramping up. So the way they plan to do this is one, their business model is a little misunderstood because they say that they everything that's not paid out in claims, they donate to charity, which sounds like a you know very noble cause, but a terrible profit model. But so what they do, they take a, a an upfront fee, a portion of the premium right off the bat that is their money to do to you know cover their costs, invest if they want to, things like that. It's twenty five percent. So twenty five percent of the of the premium goes to paying their expenses and can be invested. It's their you know the the yeah, how sort of their version of a company. float, I guess. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And the other seventy five percent they use to purchase reinsurance policies that kind of. Make, instead of making a variable payout for claims, you know, as claims come in, they pay them out and so on and so on, the reinsurance allows them to kind of make a flat cost of paying out claims. They buy these reinsurance policies. They have a predictable cost of claims. That 25% is predictable money that's in their pocket. Not in their pocket. But I mean, that's that's what they can use to run their business. So over the over time, this can be profitable. I love the charitable aspect of the, the operation, um, it, I, I love that. I like that um, they're using – one Buffett lesson that really applies to this, not only is insurance you know, Buffett's favorite, in, favorite industry, that's Berkshire Hathaway at, at its core as an insurance company, but Buffett has taught us to look for durable competitive advantages. The use of artificial intelligence and other high, you know, technologies that other insurance companies don't use and getting a kind of a first mover advantage in that way gives them the durable competitive advantage of having a favorable cost structure. It's cheaper to generate a, po- a policy through artificial intelligence than through a live agent. It's it's cheaper to, you know, same same idea with banks. It's cheaper to process a deposit through a mobile app than it is to have a teller assist you. So they use the same kind of idea here. And that's a durable advantage, especially since they're really the first ones to, to really develop these insurance technologies. Um, they're, they're the first you know, tech-focused insurance company. Other, you know, Geico has a mobile app, but that's not the focus of their business is, is using tech. So that's a durable competitive advantage. I think this business has a ton of room to grow over time. The growth so far has been very impressive. Most of their customers, 70% of their customers are under 35. So they're bringing in people who are new to the insurance world. 90% said they didn't switch from another insurance company. So that means they're getting a lot of first-timers. Um, so the you know renters insurance and homeowners insurance, especially they're getting they're targeting first time home buyers, for example. These are people who are young and could be lemonade customers for the next fifty years. So it's a long tailed customer base, cost advantages. They're doing a great job of kind of bringing newer people who don't maybe people who don't have renters insurance right now, bringing them into the insurance economy, which could eventually be upgraded to homeowners insurance once these people buy homes. So there's a lot of room to grow this business. I really like Lemonade's model. Like any IPO, I would advise kind of taking a small nibble at first. Um, I wouldn't advise putting, you know, 10% of your portfolio into this stock right now. But it's a recent IPO. A lot could, There's a lot of execution risk. We won't sugarcoat it. There's Whenever you're trying to, you know, be a pioneer in a, in a space and and really disrupt a $5 trillion industry, there's a ton of execution risk. So I would advise taking a small nibble at first, but this is a stock that's on my watch list and 
Obviously, now that I've mentioned it right now, I can't buy it in the next few days, but it's one that I plan to at least take a small nibble in my portfolio in the near future. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I like that charitable uh, aspect to it. And, and I think, you know, you, you mentioned the the younger demographic. I think that resonates a lot with the younger demographic. And, and I also think it, it that's probably a business that does pretty well with sort of a word of mouth advertising, right? I mean, I, I would I would imagine that that a lot of people just you know talk with their friends and family about this company, and maybe you know given the branding and what they're doing and, and that aspect of the business, the word of mouth, you know, hopefully that's something that can you know they don't they don't have to spend so much really to create that awareness and, and, and acquire those customers. But but yeah, that's I, I, we talked about lemonade on the show before. I really like that one. That's great. Um, another one we've talked about on the show before, and and I'm going with this week is Bill.com. Ticker is B I L L. Very easy to remember. Um, but if you remember Bill.com, this was founded in 2006 by Rene Lacert, and their mission is to make it simple to connect and do business. That's a pretty wide-reaching mission, of course. But what they do is they provide uh, cloud-based software that digitizes and automates back-office financial operations, primarily for small to medium-sized businesses, those SMBs that we talk about. Uh, it is a relative newcomer to the public markets as well. They just IPO'd in December 2019, and shares have done really well uh, since that initial pricing of $22. Um, digging into the business, for me, it, it starts to become clear why. I think, um, again, they're, they're trying to help these small to medium-sized businesses essentially make paper-based manual tra- transactions obsolete. Um, you know, a lot of these businesses still rely on writing checks and keeping paper ledgers and whatnot. But um, you know, Bill.com is really trying to to bring all of these small to medium-sized businesses into the 21st century and making it cost-effective, um, according to the SMB Technology Adoption Index. In 2016, more than 90% of small to medium-sized businesses surveyed still relied on paper checks to make and accept business-to-business payments. So you can see big opportunity there to uh, eliminate, maybe not cash, but checks, right? We talk about the war on cash. This is very similar in that they're trying to eliminate that paper trail. Um, it's, it's a SaaS business. You know, The customers pay a monthly subscription for services. Uh, they also benefit from transactions conducted on the platform and revenue generated on interest earned from customer funds held in trust. It's a small part of the business today, but they continue to grow. It could become more meaningful. And they do all this with uh, artificial intelligence, an AI-driven platform. That's that's really one of their one of their competitive advantages. Is really trying to use technology to make uh, this as efficient to business as possible. And we talk about efficient. I mean, they they are doing something here. At the end of this most recent quarter, they just reported last week, 90, uh, more than ninety eight thousand customers, which was up twenty eight percent from a year ago. Uh, they processed twenty five point four billion dollars in total payment volume. Uh, which was up, I think, 26% from a year ago. And then at the end of the fourth quarter, they held over 2.5 million network members. That was up 39% uh, from the 1.8 million members at the end of the last fiscal year. They processed 5.6 million payments for the quarter, Matt. 5.6 million. And so you've got this big network uh, of, of providers and participants, members, and, and ultimately what this can do is create a very um, compelling network effect over time, assuming that they continue to grow that customer base. Um, and certainly, I think you're seeing that businesses more and more would like to move away from paper and checks and whatnot. And, and so, Bill.com, is, it's you know not the only one out there really doing what it's trying to do. 
Uh, still a very young company, uh, like I said, relatively new to the public markets. Uh, but but Rene Lassart, the CEO, the founder, uh, he, he's got a strong history in this space, and he seems like he knows what he's doing. Um, it is unprofitable. I think probably the biggest risk today is evaluation. Um, it is trading at around 40 time, 48 times sales. So, so clearly, I mean, in a market where a lot of these businesses are trading this way, uh, Bill.com is no exception. So, like you said with Lemonade, I think it's one where I would advise um, nibbling. I would advise buying this in thirds, maybe, and say, okay, if you know how much money you would want to invest in this business, split that total amount up into three different tranches and just invest one tranche at a time. Maybe get some skin in the game to start following it. If you find another uh, more opportunistic entry point down the down the road, you know, add that second or third tranche. Uh, but but like you, Matt, I, this is a business that I actually want to bring into my own personal portfolio. So uh, my intention is that once our our uh, time uh, is 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 up here and we can actually make these transactions, I personally am going to uh, put a little money to work in Bill.com as well because I just have seen what they're doing. And while it's a very competitive space, it's also a very big market. Um, and and you know, Mr. Lassert seems like a really uh, compelling founder leader. So uh, so there you go, Bill.com. In lemonade, and the ticker for lemonade again, Matt was L M N D. L M N D. Since this is the Buffett episode, I'm going to go one step further and ask you a question. Then I'll answer it about lemonade. Okay. Um, do you think Warren Buffett should or will buy Bill.com stock, not the company? Stock, not the company. Okay. Yeah. I well, I don't. Mm, I don't know that he will. I think he should, and I, and I think that just based on the investments in Pag Seguro and Stone Co, for example, um, and maybe it's not even Buffett particularly, but the team that he's assembled there, I think they see the merits of the space. I think they see the merits of the fintech space and what it's doing. Um, I think that it has a lot of qualities that Mr. Buffett um, and company appreciate. So it it would not surprise me if they did buy it, but it may be a little bit too small. Of of a company, um, even for him. I mean, like I said, the the valuation is is pretty crazy, and I don't know. There's that margin of safety that he feels so good about today. How about you? What what do you think with Lemonade? Yeah, I, I mean, I think he should. Um, and the reason there, there's a couple of reasons. One, because insurance, you know, is Buffett's favorite business, and they're kind of the future of insurance. And Buffett has a history of you know taking nibbles on some up and comers in his favorite spaces. Think of Stone Co. Um, you know, Buffett loves payment processing. He's owned American Express for a long time. He has positions in Visa and MasterCard. And then, you know, Stone Co is the Brazilian kind of equivalent. And he's t- he took a took a nice nibble in that. Um, I could see him doing a similar thing with a company like Lemonade because, you know, they're the higher tech players. He kind of missed the boat on a lot of the big tech crazes like Amazon and, and Google, things like that. And he has expressed regret over it. So I think... You know he could redeem himself a little bit by getting in on the on the ground floor of an up and coming insurance, you know tech play um, like Lemonade. They're a reinsurance comp- customer. Buffett has a lot of reinsurance businesses. There could be a lot of synergies there. Um, it's a play that would make make sense, I think, as a nibble. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think you're right. Given his penchant for insurance, and and I bet you he loves what that company stands for. If you talk to him about it, he'd appreciate that. I think so. Um, well, I mean, hey, folks, listen, there are two companies that um, Matt and I really like. We wanted to go one step further than just ones to watch this week and really talk about companies that we uh, feel you know strongly about and, and strongly uh, enough to, to put our own money to work. And so um, I'm excited to, to see how these work out. I love that lemonade pitch, Matt. I think it's a cool looking company. I've, I've just really been impressed with what I've learned about Bill.com, and, and I'm going to have a lot of fun following these. I know you will too. 
For sure. Well, that's going to do it for uh, us this week, folks. And Matt, I, I want to, man, before I, before we leave, I just want to wish you guys well. Have a safe trip. Um, are, are you, given that you're in South Carolina, are you flying down to Florida or are you guys going to drive? No. And um, for those, uh, we, we, we talked about this before the recording started, I think. But uh, for those just who are just listening on the podcast, we're going to Disney World for the weekend. Yeah. Um, we are driving. It's about a six-hour drive from, from where I live. Um, That's not bad. We have to make all. reservations. It's a little bit of a different system than we're used to, uh, but we were able to. We were worried because Labor Day, you know, you think Labor Day and Disney, and you, I could just start getting <laughs> claustrophobic with all the not crowds. The, not the place you would have be. <laughs> right, but they're limiting capacity to like twenty percent. So I mean, it even you know how busy could it get? That sounds like <laughs> the dream, man. I think and, uh, that ought to be a lot of fun. Yeah, and we were able to reserve all three parks we wanted on the days we wanted. And, Beautiful. I keep looking at the Disney app and all the lines are like five or 10 minutes for all the rides we want to do. Man, so that ought to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it just seems like a nice, like a once in a lifetime opportunity to, if you're not that worried about the, and we're going to be taking precautions in my way. Sure. You know, yeah. she buys sanitizer by the gallon for things like this. <laughs> so we're going to, we're going to be taking precautions. We're not, you know, I'm not saying, you know, don't worry about the virus. But yeah. I, from what from everything I hear, Disney's doing a great job at keeping everything clean and following protocols and things like that. And I haven't read any. They, they've been open for almost two months now. I haven't read anything about someone like a case being traced back to Disney World. <laughs> I'd imagine that they are probably setting the standard for keeping a park clean and safe. So, well, we'll talk about it when you get back. And as a reminder, folks, with, uh, folks, with next week being uh, Labor Day weekend on, on uh, next Monday, we will be off as, as the office will be closed. So, so no industry focus next Monday. Um, we will uh, join back with you on the following Monday. We'll talk about uh, Matt's trip and uh, get his, uh, you know, his report on the state of travel and entertainment in the, uh, in the southeast of, of the United States of America. But remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. You can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. Let us know if you're traveling anywhere. Tell us how that's going. We'd love to hear. And, uh, you know, any, any compelling stuff out there, hey, we'll bring it over to the show, too. But as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together. For Matt Frankel and Jason Moser, thanks for listening, and we will see you not next week, but the week after. Happy Labor Day, folks. Happy Labor Day, folks.